Good morning, everybody. You can be seated. It's really good to be here this morning. This week, I started to get more into the Christmas spirit, as we like to say. I got my tree down from the attic. I'm allergic to trees. Don't hate me because I have a fake tree, but so that's the best I can do. But Isaac Combs helped me get my tree down from the attic, and I was just in a great mood. And, and I started to wrap my tree with the lights when Isaac suggested, you know, Michael, you should probably test these first. And I'm glad that he did because when I plugged them in, half of my lights were out. But I wasn't going to let that ruin my Christmas spirit. Walmart was going to save the day, only to find out Walmart closed in five minutes. So Amazon to the rescue. I got my lights on Friday. I wrapped my Christmas tree with my, my lights with the help of Jensen and Wilkes and Vance, and they helped me get this done. And so I'm excited about Christmas. It's here, right? We love to celebrate Christmas, don't we? We love all that it stands for. So one way that we like to celebrate Christmas is to exchange gifts. We exchange gifts with family, with friends, with coworkers, and there's lots of ways that we do this, right? Probably the most common way that you and I do this is we go out and we buy gifts for people that we love, people that we're close to, and we give them a gift, we exchange gifts. This is what we do in my family. On Christmas morning, we get together, my parents, you know, my sister, my brother-in-law, my two nephews, and myself, and, and we exchange gifts. Sometimes, like for an office party, we use the secret Santa method. And if you're not familiar, secret Santa, it's where everyone draws a name out of a hat, and it's a secret whose name you get. And then you go and you buy a gift for that person, and you give it to them, and when you give it to them, the secret Santa is revealed. Now, one of the most fun ways, at least the most fun way that I think, is the white elephant gift exchange. I heard some, yes, yeah, yeah, it's a good one, right? You know this one, right? It's where each person, they go out and they buy a wrapped, gagged gift to give someone. There's usually a, a rule on what kind of gift that you can, that you can get, like it can't cost over $10, or when, when, one that I like to do when I do this with students is say you have to bring it from your house. And usually what happens is something is broken, or something you don't want anymore, or it's just a really weird gift, and they bring it, and they wrap it, and it's just, it's just strange. So, of course, the whole point of this is you're trying to get the most laughs out of someone. And this is always the party. Tell me if this is true or not. This is always the party where someone brings wrapped toilet paper because they think it's funny, but it's not. We just need to stop with the wrapped toilet paper. So... The weirdest white elephant gift that I've ever seen brought to a party. It was this huge, like 10 foot long, so there was a pole in concrete wrapped. Think of like someone gone out in their backyard and dug up a volleyball pole or a basketball pole, left the, the, the concrete attached to it and they wrapped it and they brought it. But what's even weirder is it showed back up the next year when we did the white elephant gift. Makes no sense, but it's usually people's favorite, right? Now, as much fun as exchanging gifts can be, there's also a flip side to it. There's also a part of us that doesn't enjoy exchanging gifts. 
I know that sounds crazy because 99% of us love to receive gifts, right? But sometimes it's hard to know what to buy somebody. Maybe for you, that's trying to buy a gift for your dad who has everything. Or there's the super picky person who always wants something very specific and they drop lots of hints and it turns out that gift is also very, very expensive. That's usually me, by the way. Who in here has kids? They ask for something totally impossible or totally unrealistic to get, right? Maybe it's your mom who always says, whatever is fine. And so you don't, you don't know what to get them. You're not really sure what to do. Any last minute shoppers in here who, who are rummaging through whatever is left over after the Christmas rush? You know, you go to the store the week before Christmas and they're out of everything. So in your desperation, you tell yourself, it's gonna be okay. And you convince yourself that buying someone socks and underwear is a good idea. And you wrap it and you give it to them. Sometimes it's because someone bought you a really nice gift. And all you bought or got for them was homemade cookies and now you feel really guilty because they've given you this really nice expensive thing and you're handing them cookies in exchange. It feels really awkward. There's also the person, they're trying to buy the perfect gift for their significant other. And so they, they're trying to choose between two things. They think, this is really great. And they're like, this is really great. And they don't know what to do. And so they feel frozen. They feel stuck. And then there's that guy. You don't want to be that guy. Let me explain to you. One year during Thanksgiving, my sister asked me for a list. So I gave her a few things that I wanted. One of them was a very specific LSU sweatshirt that I wanted. I sent her my size and a link to this very specific LSU sweatshirt. But later that afternoon, I decided I didn't want to wait till Christmas. So I went ahead and bought the very specific LSU sweatshirt. And I thought to myself, you know, there's no guarantee she's going to buy it for me. I gave her a list of things, right? Well, later as time goes on, I'm FaceTiming my sister. I'm showing her some things that I had gotten. And one of the things that I showed was the LSU sweatshirt. Well, I quickly noticed my sister was very aggravated at me because uh, she had bought me this LSU sweatshirt and I was now, you know, had it. Needless to say, my brother-in-law now has a very nice LSU sweatshirt <laughs> that I liked. All that to say though, exchanging gifts can be quite tricky. We have good intentions, but sometimes it just doesn't work out the way that you and I hoped that it would. See, last week, Pastor Zach introduced our new Christmas series, Bring, by talking about Christmas gifts. Together we learned about how God is a thoughtful giver. His love and kindness to us, it was not random or spontaneous, but instead God had us in mind from the very beginning. You see, God's plan was to bring salvation to the world through Jesus. So God sent Jesus to earth and he was born as a baby. We talked about how, how God, how, how Jesus gives us our value and our worth, how Jesus gives us a family. All, and we all have a way to become children of God. In other words, the greatest gift ever given to the world was the gift of Jesus. And so today, I want us to explore this thought. 
Jesus had to bring himself and his desires to God to bring glory to God so he could bring people to God. So when it comes to exchanging gifts, what is our response to receiving the greatest gift of Jesus? How do we compete with that? Is it even worth trying? The good news is that the Bible shows us in the book of Mark. So let's take a look together this morning at what Jesus says, and I want us to start with Mark chapter eight. And as you're flipping to Mark chapter eight, I wanna give you a little background on Mark. Mark is one of the books in the Bible written to teach us about Jesus. In it, we learn that Jesus is all about helping people. We read about the many miracles that Jesus performed and see time and time again that Jesus put other people's needs before his own. In other words, we see that Jesus not only taught about serving others, but Jesus actually served others himself. So this morning I want us to take a look at a conversation that happened between Jesus and his disciples right before what we're going to read. So I'm going to give you a little background on that. This will help us understand what Jesus is teaching his disciples and the crowd. And so here's how I would sum up the conversation before what we're about to read. As Jesus and his disciples were traveling from village to village, Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And then Jesus followed that up with a question to his disciples, who do you say that I am? And this is where Peter Peter rightly answers that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. And then Peter does what you and I tend to do, and he sticks his foot in his mouth. So right after declaring that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior, Peter shows that his confession of Jesus is actually a selfish confession. You see, Peter believes that Jesus has come back to be a military king, one who's going to defeat the evil Roman Empire and lead him and his buddies and Israel to freedom. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? But that's not what Jesus was trying to say, and it's not why Jesus came to earth. So follow along as I read Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 33. But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The first point I want to make this morning is bring yourself to Jesus. Deny yourself. Give up your own way. So what does it mean to deny yourself? We need to change our perspective. I want to illustrate that with uh, some drawings this morning. We're going to put one up on the screen. I, I know you've probably seen this. This is an optical illusion. Some of you, when you look at this, you see an old lady. And then others, when you look at it, you see a young lady. So I'm going to kind of help, maybe if you don't see it. So here's the chin of the old lady. And here's her nose. And that's her eyeball. But for the young lady... Here's her nose over here, 
and the old lady's eyeball is her ear, and the young lady's chin is right here. Do y'all see both of the, the images? All right, good, good. I saw some head nod. Now we got another image. You either see a young lady or you see P.E. playing the sax, whichever one that you choose, right? You got the saxophone right here. You got the hair that looks like P.E.'s hairdo, right? The body, or you see the young lady. This is one of her eyes. This is another kind of one of her eyes. Her nose right here becomes part of the saxophone. Her lips are part of the saxophone. So you either see, you know, P.E. the sax player or the old lady. And I got one more for you. Here you either see a duck or you see a rabbit. And so for the duck bill right here, right his face right, or the rabbit, you got the eye of the rabbit in the mouth and then the duck bill becomes the rabbit's ears. And what I'm trying to say with this is that we need to change our perspective. I think a lot of the time we think bringing ourselves to Jesus means Jesus is telling us to give up things that we like. That we are supposed to sacrifice things to show that we follow him. But in all honesty, I'm not sure that's what it means. Now hear me out. I think that actually waters down what Jesus is trying to say. I think Jesus is trying to say something more powerful than just give up things for me. I know that he wants us to give up things for him. I'm not questioning that. But when we only look at it this way, I think it waters it down. Let me explain. To deny yourself means that we need to stop looking at things from our point of view. Life isn't about us. It's not about what we want. We are not the center of life. We need to learn to see things from God's point of view. We need to move from a self-centered viewpoint to a God-centered viewpoint. And here's a good test for us to see which point of view we are seeing life from. Are we asking, what's in it for me when we follow God? Versus, what can I do for God? Isn't it true that a lot of times when we follow God's word, when we do what it says, our heart's attitude, the whole time we're doing it is, what's in it for me? Or, hey God, do you see what I'm doing for you? Or, you're gonna bless me, aren't you, God? I can't wait to get my reward. I have to confess that at times, I treat the Bible as a self-help book. Don't get me wrong. I believe that God loves to help us, wants to help us. I believe that God's word helps us. But God's word is not a self-help book. It's not about us. It's about a holy, magnificent, wonderful, loving, forgiving God. When we read it from the perspective of a self-help book, we become the center of it. When we read it from the perspective of it being about God, then we see God for who he really is, and we fall in love with God. If we really want to deny ourselves, and bring ourselves to Jesus, then we need to give up our own way. We need to quit thinking that God's way revolves around us and making our lives materially better. Or that following God gets us what we want and what we desire. 
We need to change our perspective. We need to change it so that we're asking, what can I do for God? As we keep reading, we're going to see that Jesus takes it a little further. Second point, bring your obedience to Jesus. Take up your cross. As a Jew in ancient Israel, Jesus was living in a time where the Romans were in charge with their mighty army and their overpowering government, and they were oppressing the Jews. A huge reminder that the Jews weren't free was the cross. Not only did the cross represent death and punishment, but more importantly, the cross represented submission, bowing down to the power of the Romans. So when Jesus was using the phrase, take up your cross, he is painting a very vivid picture of submission. Except, he wasn't suggesting that those who wanted to follow him bow and submit to the Romans. Instead, he was very plainly teaching that those who want to follow Jesus must turn from asking, what's in it for me? And ask, what can I do for God? In other words, we are called to a life of submission, obedience to God. As followers, our life is not our own. So we need to consider what does obedience look like in our daily life? When it comes to how we spend our free time, being intentional in our friendships, making choices that represent God and what he cares about, aligning our desires, our wants, with God's desires, God's wants. Living a life of integrity. What or who we worship. How we view our rights. How we choose our career. How we spend our money. So I think we have to ask ourselves, what does it take to bring our obedience to Jesus? In a word, repentance. Daily repentance. This Mark chapter 8 that we just read, the more familiar one I think that we quote more often is Luke chapter 9, where it talks, tells us to take up our cross daily. Daily you and I are called to repentance. Theologian and author Chad Bird defines repentance this way. Repentance is never simply the abandonment of sin. Theoretically, anyone can stop stealing, murdering, abusing, committing adultery, etc., at least in action. But that is not repentance. Repentance involves a return to one's origin, source, genesis, namely God. I know a lot of times when I've talked about and taught repentance, I always talk about turning from something. But that's only half the definition. The other half means we have to return to God. Taking our cross means that we run from anything, anything in us that is self-centered. That's about us. And we run back to God, the one who we come from. We run from disobedience and run toward obeying the one who gave us the greatest gift of Jesus. 
So, so far we, we've kind of talked about and we've kind of learned that, that you and I were called to bring ourselves to Jesus, to deny self. And we're called to bring our obedience to Jesus, we're called to take up our cross daily. And these two things are imperative to the next thing Jesus says, which is follow me. In fact, the Greek points us to understand that we cannot follow Jesus without first denying ourselves and taking up our cross. So the third thing, third point I want us to talk about, bring your life to Jesus, the follow me part. And so that we can properly get a context and, a, and an understanding of, of what it means to bring ourselves to Jesus and how he uses this phrase, follow me, I think it greatly helps us to understand the Jewish educational system. See, in elementary school, it was called Bet Safer, which means house of the book. Children started school, kind of like we do, between the ages of four to five years old. Rabbis of the community taught the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. Their emphasis was on reading, writing, and memorization. See, most of the children had the entire Torah memorized by the time they had finished Bet Safer. Remember, there were no Bibles to take home. Parents, can you imagine your students by the time they're 12 having memorized the first five books of the Old Testament? That would be super impressive. That's what the school did here. See, and then at the conclusion of Bet Safer, the girls would stay home and they would help with the family and the boys would begin to learn a trade. Jesus' trade was carpentry. And then the best students continued their education in secondary school, known as Bet Midrash, or House of Study. And while they did this, they also learned a trade. They stepped up their game by studying the prophets and the writings and the oral traditions of the Torah. You can think of that as like the commentaries that we read today. And they did this so that they could learn to make their own applications of the Bible. Now the best of the best, the few and far between, they would seek permission from the local rabbi to study under them. They were known as Talmudim. Think of it like college abroad because they would often leave home to study. And here's what sets Talmudim apart. Most students want to know what's on the test so they can pass. Is that fair to say, students, right? You ask the teacher what's gonna be on the test. But here's the difference. The best of the best, they want to know what the rabbi knows so they can become like him, so they can imitate him. What their rabbi said, what their rabbi did, how their rabbi treated others. Talmudim want to follow their rabbi, to be with, to live with, to live by his teachings, to submit and obey. Everything else came second. There was this idea, this thought that came from a Jewish proverb. It goes like this. Follow a rabbi, drink in his words, and be covered with the dust of his feet. And in Jesus' day, disciples, they followed the rabbi as they walked from town to town. They followed their rabbi so closely that when the rabbi's feet kicked up dust, the Talmudim, the disciples, the followers would be covered in the dust of the rabbi that they were following. See, this intimacy, this way of life 
This is discipleship. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. This is what Jesus meant when he said, follow me. In the book, Sitting at the Feet of Rabbi Jesus, Jesus, Lois Verberg writes that the goal of discipleship is to become like Jesus. Not becoming like Jesus leads to a wasted, frustrating life. Jesus put it this way. As we keep reading in Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 37, it says, For whoever would save his life will lose it. Now fast forwarding to verse 36. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in glory of his Father with the holy angels. And Tverberg goes on to say, becoming like Jesus leads to a joyful authentic life. It's not easy, but it's good. Jesus leads to a greater passion, purpose, and fulfillment. When you and I, when we bring our lives to Jesus, he uses us to bring people the good news. So I want us to look back at 35, that part we skipped over to see what it says. It says, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. So when we do these things, when we deny ourselves, when we take up our cross and we follow Jesus, there's a point. Losing our life for the sake of the gospel. Jesus had to bring himself and his desires to God to bring glory to God so he could bring people to God. Which means we need to bring ourselves and our desires to God to bring glory to God so that we can bring people to God. In the book of 1 Corinthians, the Corinthians Christians, they had lost their way. They were living in a city whose culture was influenced by a robust economy and people who worshiped lots of gods. See, and Paul had spent a year and a half here building up the church, planning a church, and he knew the people really well. He knew what they were going through, so when he heard about their struggles, he wrote them a personal letter, and we call that personal letter 1 Corinthians. Let's take a peek at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. It'll be on the screen. It says this, For whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Don't give offense to Jews or Gentiles or the church of God. I, too, try to please everyone in everything I do. I don't just do what is best for me. I do what is best for others so that they may be saved. And you should imitate me just as I imitate Christ. What if that became our goal as a church? What if that became your goal? What if doing everything for the glory of God, not what's best for me, but for others, so that they may be saved, what if that became the lens in which you and I did life? 
How would that change the conversation you have with people at work? How would that view, how would that change how your family viewed playing sports? How would that challenge who you ate lunch with around the table? Would that make you more intentional about building relationships with those around you? So that you could share your story and bring them to Jesus. Build, share, bring. So what does that look like on a Monday? What does that look like for each one of us tomorrow? First thing I want to suggest is ask yourself, am I doing this for myself? Or am I doing this for God? Students at school, I think that looks like this. Instead of saying, God, if I tell my friends about Jesus, will you make it so they don't make fun of me? Which isn't a bad prayer, but look at this. Look at how maybe you can say it differently. God, you have given so much to me. And I want to tell my friends about Jesus. Will you give me the words to say and give my friend an open heart to hear how great you are. The difference between these two statements is that the first one's primary concern is self. And the second flows out of love and concern for God and making him known. We need to change our perspective so that we're asking, what can I do for God? Here's another question I think we can ask. Are you reading your Bible through a lens of what's in it for me? I do that a lot. Or what does it teach me about God and how to treat others? See, we need to change our perspective from what can I get out of reading the Bible to learning about and falling in love with the one who has given us the greatest gift. Yes, we do receive something by bringing ourselves to God. But when we make it about us, it becomes a very selfish act that influences how we live our lives. Tim Keller says this, the question is not, how can I use God to live my life the way I wanna live it? No, the question ought to be, how is the life that I am living right now getting me to God and how must I change it? Because getting to God is the most important thing. The second thing I think we can do on a Monday is take an obedience inventory. Here's what I mean. We can ask ourselves, what areas of my life am I struggling to obey what Jesus teaches? And at the end of tomorrow, maybe ask yourself these questions. You can write them down or if you want to take your phone and take a picture Maybe this will help you figure out, are you being obedient? Ask yourself these questions. Did my free time honor God? Was I intentional in serving my friends so that they are pointed to Jesus? Did my choices represent God and what he cares about? Did my desires and wants align with God's desires and wants? Did I live a life of integrity? Was I more concerned with my rights 
or God's glory? Am I loving my coworkers like Jesus would? Am I welcoming the least of these like Jesus did? Did I spend my money on things that build the kingdom? See, at the end of the day, I guess what I'm trying to say is can we say that we imitated Jesus today? Can we say that we are covered in his dust? Church, can you imagine if we brought ourselves and our desires to God? How would that change our perspective about our jobs? How would that change our perspective about our study habits? The way we spend our time, our energy, our money? Can you imagine the glory God would get when you and I imitated Jesus and pointed to the greatness of God rather than how great we think we are, rather than making it about ourselves. Can you imagine if we lived out Philippians chapter two? Let me read verses three through eight. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Jesus put other people's interests above his own. He didn't look at things from his point of view, but from God's point of view. His perspective was that he belonged to God. Jesus emptied himself by serving those around him, and he was obedient to whatever God wanted him to do. In other words, Jesus imitated God. Jesus had to bring himself and his desires to God to bring glory to God so he could bring people to God. Which means if we want to be followers of Jesus, if we want to be covered in his dust, we need to bring ourselves and our desires to God to bring glory to God so that we can bring people to God. I want the uh, worship team to come back up. We're going to sing together again. And I want, I want to, to just take this moment to pray together. I want to pray for us, but also pray for you and your family and your friends that we might be people who build, share, and bring. Let's pray together. God, you are the greatest, and you have given us the greatest gift that we could ever hope for that we could ever need in Jesus. So Father, I, I ask that today your word, that your scripture, that it may challenge us, that it may make us think of what it means to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and to follow you. 
Lord, that our hearts and our desires might be obedience, that it might be submission to who you are, that it might be one of repentance, that we turn from things that are not you, that are about us, and we run to you. Lord, would you give us that desire? Would you help us to do that because we cannot do that our own? Lord, you are good and you are worthy of our worship. Help us to bring who we are and our desires to you so that we can bring people to you. That's this in Jesus' name, amen.